0: Michael Hoschling here with Kiki Gardening. This is number four of our conversations. How you doing, Kiki?
1: I'm doing great, Michael. How about you? Uh, good well, to talk to
0: you again. Good to talk to you as well. Always enjoyable. So yes. uh, what's on your mind? What kind of questions okay. you got today?
1: Well, here... Well, what's on my mind? You know, that <laughs> is a dangerous question. <laughs> you can't just throw that out there. But... Um, Today, particularly, I was very curious after we had spoken about transpersonal therapy and the way you used it and the philosophies. I had a ton of questions, and besides a ton of questions, I have to tell you that this is an area that I have been working in and studying for many, many years, and it actually just completely changed my perspective and made me question a lot of not in a negative way a lot of what i have practiced or or experienced myself in in different kinds of therapy but question as far as what is there that i could add and um to that end because i really find it fascinating and i find it extraordinarily different than any of the other modalities, any of the other theories that I have studied or heard about. Uh, So I would like to know a little more about it because I would love to incorporate some elements and possibly study more about it in order to do that very well. But I really would love to hear about how it works, how you do it, how, how you experience it and how that works for you and your patients. By the way, I say clients because I don't therapeutically treat patients. So to me, when I'm working, it's a client, it's a coaching client. Um, if I think somebody is in need of therapy, I will discuss that with them and make a referral. But we had discussed last time the use of patient, client, etc. So I was just clarifying. Gotcha. Um, as an introduction, because there's always an introduction to my introduction, um, I'm just going to read to you... I was doing a little research uh, getting ready for this conversation, and I'll just read to you a few terms that came up, and if you want to comment on them or just include them somehow, or if these are wrong, I got them off different websites. so. Um, But the basic gist was that transpersonal therapy is it it focuses on the health of a person's spirit, and um, some of the issues that are considered and some that are developed are include and are spiritual self-development, peak experiences, mystical experiences, which I'm sure are very like. That just raised a lot of questions for me, as I'm sure they do for a lot of other people. Systemic trance, um, altered states of consciousness, and spiritual practices. These are just uh, some that that came up. So um, if you could include those, or if you want to address them, or I could just go straight into... Well, actually, my first question is that um, I've read... Transpersonal therapy described as a spiritual therapy. Could you speak about that a bit?
0: Certainly. Uh, and just for background purposes, my graduate work was uh, in transpersonal counseling psychology, um, okay. although for my licensure, I had to study all the other schools: um, cognitive, cognitive behavioral uh, self psychology, object relations, family systems, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, okay. So I, I do have background in others, and my postgraduate work was in somatic psychology. So okay. I'm more than happy to talk transpersonal, but it is one perspective among many that I use in my work previously uh-huh. as a therapist and presently as a coach. Okay. You know, it's a, it's a reality tunnel that I look through. Uh, if it's okay. of interest to a particular client or a patient, depending
1: on all right. coaching or doing okay. Therapy. So include all of that. Sure. You know, I'm happy to hear about all of it.
0: Okay. okay. Um, if you look at uh, the various religious systems of the world the monotheistic ones from the middle east judaism christianity islam Um, if you look at the the pagan or earth mysticism religions if you look at buddhism if you look at hinduism um, they use different language but they all recognize a greater reality than what we might call in the west the ego and the objective world there's something greater than just physical reality, and in our personal ego. And they have different ways of dis- mm-hmm. talking about it, and describing it, and if you do a deep dive, you'll see the different levels of discussion, so each of those religions don't necessarily talk about the same levels, post-ego, um, post-concrete uh, uh, reality. And it's not to say we deny ego, we don't deny re- physical reality, but there's something greater than that. Um, In the the Western traditions, you might call it God or spirit. Um, In Hinduism, Brahman. In in, uh, Buddhism, they don't have a God. Uh, They have void or emptiness. So each of the different religious systems have a different way of describing the the trans uh, uh, reality. Um, And all those religious systems, including including Taoism, even the shamanic practices from Africa uh, and and South and Central America, Uh, and the indigenous folks in in the United States as well, or in in America because it would be Canada and the United States, Um, all those systems, religious systems, have practices which attempt to open up their members or their followers or believers to this uh, higher reality. Mm -hmm. Prayer, meditation, yoga, sensory deprivation, the use of psychedelic medicines, um, chanting, trance dance, you know, a wide variety of different practices depending on what tradition we're talking about. And most of the intentions behind this tradition, behind these practices, are to open the mind and open the heart. So, you know, open the heart to be more compassionate, more caring, more loving. Um, if you go to the Buddhist tradition, you know, it's not just about being more compassionate and loving for human beings, which is obviously really important but all sentient beings, so it's all, all beings that are, that are living. Um, but, you know, depending on which tradition we're talking about. And then opening the mind. Uh, and in some of these traditions, they also open the body to new realities and new ways of uh, organizing itself and moving in the world. Uh, so that's, you know, the basic intention is that, you know, these practices are cross-cultural, Mm-hmm. They're historical. They're, they're not new. They're not old. They've been around for you know. They're both new and old, um, and there must be something to them. Now, I, I would like mm-hmm. to make a distinction between the mythic systems of these various religions and the spiritual practices, because those can be two different things. Is that okay if I do that? Uh, absolutely. Okay. So you know, in Christianity, you have the the, the Virgin Birth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Christians believe in the virgin birth. In Taoism, Lao Tzu was born from his mother's side at 900 years old. Now, from a rational scientific perspective, you'd say, well, of course, there's no such thing as a virgin birth, and there's no way that Lao Tzu was born from his mother's side at 900 years old. I mean, that's just a scientific Mm -hmm. unreality. Mm -hmm. Um, So, from a transpersonal perspective, I would not say to a Christian that you're wrong. I would be much more interested in, I'd be less interested in the myths that they follow if they're, they're, um, uh, you know, basing the kind of the mythic perspective of their own religions, and more interested in the practices which come out of their tradition to help them live out in in terms of Christianity, a Christ-like-like. How can they be more loving? How can they be more compassionate? How can they integrate prayer and meditation into their lives to be more, as I said, Christ-like? Or if they're in the yoga tradition, you know, they they talk about Atman, which is your soul. Mm-hmm. Atman and Brahman, the universal source, are the same things. And once you, you know, through their various practices, get in touch with your soul, you realize your soul is the same as the godhead. But those take those things take practices. Um, but I, as I said, the distinction between the myth of these various religious systems, which make them unique and different from one another. Um, and the practices which can open you up to new realities, uh, in many cases, are different things, and in some cases, are similar. And we could get
1: into that in, in, in a moment if you want. Um, sure. But, like, it sounds a little bit like what you know when you were describing your transpersonal, uh, transpersonal, transpartisan coalitions. It doesn't make a difference where they came from. It just makes a difference what they're going to do now. And it's sort of that philosophy. You don't really care you know, what's of interest to you is not what they practice and what they believe, not what they believe, but what what their practices are and how that affects them in the world. Yeah. If I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, okay. Exactly right. I can give you an example
0: before, but before I do. Um, you know, in the modern age, you can look back at the various religious myths and read them uh, symbolically. You know, mm-hmm. the virgin birth has a symbolic meaning. It wasn't a physical act. Lao Tzu born from his mother's side has a symbolic meaning. It's not a physical act. You know, so the the myths which generated these religious systems can be reinterpreted in modern light and re-understood. So, you know, I'm not going to argue. I would not argue with a mythic believer, and I would not argue with a in in therapy. I mean, I might have an interesting debate or dialogue with someone. Yeah, in therapy, Um, or if they're a modern and they're just reinterpreting their particular religious system symbolically, that's fine tuned We can talk about that. But let me give you a concrete example. So, I worked with a schizophrenic gentleman, um, mm-hmm. and he was a meth user. Oh. And on, under meth, one evening, um, he had a, a, an experience of having a conversation with Jesus, mm-hmm. and Jesus told him to get off the drugs; that they're just destroying his soul. Okay. Now, when I brought this to my my my, my clinical group, which, you know, as part of a supervisory group. You know, they wanted me to be rational, scientific, and tell him that that experience was drug induced. There was no conversation with Jesus. It was all made up in his mind. Okay? Mm-hmm. I didn't. What I chose to do is I have no idea how he was inspired. Was it drugs? Was it God? Was it Jesus? God, you know, I don't know. To me, the important thing is that he had a conversation with either a part of himself or with Jesus in this case that told him to get off the drugs. If, and he got off the drugs. He stopped using drugs as a, as a matter of course. That was more important to me. And if his belief system supported that, that's perfectly fine. If I dispelled him of the quote unquote myth of Jesus talking to him, um, that would not done him any, any favors. He, he probably right. would have fallen back into drug use. Unfortunately uh, right. for him, you know, this solidified in his mind that he did have this conversation. Who am, who am I to judge? I don't know what was in his heart or his mind. And I uh, supported that reading of his experience, and he got off the drugs. Right. To me, as I said, that was more important than anything else.
1: Right. That's probably uh, that sounds familiar to me as far as like from my training. Um, that idea of uh, and just not to use any technical terms, but just going there and being with being with him, and I think that is very therapeutic. That uh, clearly, that was a tremendously positive thing. That's amazing. uh, That's a great story. Actually, I love that story. Um, And I agree with you that uh, who is anyone to say who he saw, who he didn't see, what what the experience was, as long as he's getting off it. Um, I think that's great. Fabulous.
0: Yeah, you know, and in, in the transpersonal studies that I did do, we did study the religious systems of, of the world and the mythic systems of the world, um, and you know, although they're quite different, there are also a lot of quite there are a lot of similarities between the various systems, and it's mm-hmm. interesting to note that a lot of these systems emerged around the same time. Right. You know, so, is there a drive in us as collective that leads us to have certain insights? Um, the insights would be interpreted the various cultural forms which they emerge through, but, you know, they seem to be somewhat universal, somewhat particular, um, and just kind of fascinating to try to understand why we have religious beliefs, and what yeah. effects they have on us, and how, how can they be utilized to make our lives better.
1: Yeah, that is, it, that's a totally fascinating question, which I wouldn't even go near. <laughs> Personally, I just don't. Um, I, you know, just, again... it is interesting. It is interesting that they started at the same time. Um, And that's a very interesting perspective. It would be interesting to talk to someone about it. I think I'll just say the word interesting another 500 times. Okay. Uh, Now, what if someone comes to you for treatment, but is not into exploring their spiritual path? And, you know, those kinds of things would you be able to work with them and if you were how
0: um completely yes i would be able to work with them and see i would want to know what they think a spiritual path means oh, because okay. for many people they might think oh you want me to talk about religion I, you know i was born into a catholic family or a coptic family or a buddhist family you know uh, you know that does not necessarily mean their spiritual path it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be necessarily connected to a birth religion or even a religion they chose in their youth or, or older. Um, right. You know, what drives them greater than themselves?
1: Uh-huh. So it could be yeah. an art, it could be an artist, it could be an artistic path. Yeah, it could be uh,
0: many different things, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and even okay. the artist,
0: they have their muse, you know, there's something that guides them or pulls them into their art. Something greater than just their ego. I'm, for, I'm not sure there's egoic artists, <laughs> but, you know, something right. greater than
1: well, themselves. Yeah, I don't think ego, we would have nothing in the world without ego, right. so I'm not, I have no problem with it, but the idea that there is that that pull, and that's an interesting, I would, actually, I'd love to have that conversation with you about the arts and Uh, the muse or whatever you want to call it it comes from because that is an area that I do that I'm involved in and that I study and that I participate in and it comes from so many different places that it's it's wild it's like a world onto itself each person's experience and each person the way they interact with their with their art and with their muse So that that, you you hear from
0: artists, you know, speaking of what you just said, you know, that that they share a lot in common with the spiritual systems in terms of practices. Right. Their art emerges out of a dream. Their art emerges out of a meditation. Their art emerges while they're walking in nature. Their art emerges when they're in lovemaking. You know, the the various things where the the creative juices flow, and and you know, the art emerges. Yeah, it is the same source out of which a lot of other insights can occur and a lot of these insights come from these very spiritual practices,
1: which mm-hmm. I think we can get into as well. Even the, the discipline of art and uh, the different, you know, the kinds of discipline that is necessary and discipline, I don't use it as in, you know, crack the whip, but the actual disciplines. So, um, okay, so that's that's fascinating. Um, and I like that. What, what would their spiritual path be? So then let me ask you, when a person comes in the first time you're meeting them, what, what does the session look like? Or I know each one is completely different, but what would be some things that you would need to cover in, in the first session?
0: Obviously why they think they're there okay which can be different than why they are really there
1: <laughs> yes absolutely yeah, absolutely that's, yeah that's a whole when long... I went the first time I went and uh, it was you know it was a crisis period in my life and after the second session I explained to the therapist why I no longer had to be there I had it all figured out and I wrote her a very long missive explaining that <laughs> and I was ready not to come in. I was ready to mail it to her. And she goes, "Why don't you come in? and Let's talk about it." And that that was a long time ago. And um, you know, it's been. It was after that I started studying that particular kind of therapy, but. Absolutely what I presented with um, was not was not the case. So yeah. that I totally, totally...
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a similar story. So when I was in uh, therapy school, we had to be in therapy. And uh, I was really lucky because I was in Northern California. There's a lot of really interesting schools of thought out there, and I got to play around with quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. But my first therapy encounters with a, um, a Reichenan uh, I think he's Jungian and Reichian, so a Reich body-oriented therapist, Jungian, you know, uh, all Jungian school of thought.
1: That's interesting. interesting. Yeah, which is a
0: great combination, <coughs> body and spirit kind of come together nicely. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I like you. I walked in and here's my blah 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 blah. Here's my issues, <laughs> and uh, he told me to shut up and sit okay. still and just had me breathe for like a half an hour. Wow. And that was probably the most challenging. I mean, I'd rather sit and talk because I'm a heady kind of person than sit and be aware of my breathing for half an hour. Right. Um, and, you know, it was like, wow, you know, maybe I, I need to get more into my body and my breath and less into my stories that I like to tell. Which, as you know, you know, our stories, we are, are story making creatures, but our stories <coughs> can lock us in um, into a certain way of being in the world, which is not necessarily the best way of being in the world. But you asked me about how I would work with a new yeah, client. sorry
1: not,
0: for interrupting. No, but um, So for my coaching, uh, the coaching practice I personally do. Okay. You know, obviously, I want to know why they think they're there. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to hear their story. Um, but, and I mentioned this last time, when I work with anyone, there, there are five pillars I work with um, right out. I want to know about their diet and nutrition. That includes their liquid intake, alcohol, you know, water, coffee, tea, milk, you know, whatever. Their drug use, prescription, over-the-counter, recreational drugs. All those things have an effect on one's psychology, obviously. Mm-hmm. I want to know about their sleep. And when I say sleep, very comprehensively, not just what time they go to bed, what time they wake up, what's their what's their sleep hygiene. Okay. Um, I want to know about their movement and exercise. Do they exercise? Is it sports? Is it CrossFit? Is it yoga? Is it Pilates? Tai Chi? You know, Kung Fu? Whatever. Um, And movement. What's their movement like during the day? Are they sitting in a chair all day, then they they move to their car for an hour, then they move to their couch for a couple hours, then they're in their bed. You know, I, I want to get a comprehensive picture of their daily life. What do they do for stress management? And stress management, I mean, not just healthy practices like meditation, guided imagery, yoga, but, you know, do they eat to crawl feelings of, of guilt or, you know, various emotions that they want to repress through food? Do they use marijuana? Do they use alcohol? You know, how do they deal with stress? Do they get angry and yell? Do they have road rage? You know, there's various ways we deal with our stress. Right. Shut down, right. shut out, you know, whatever. Um, I want to know that. And then I want to know their social life. Because ultimately, as social beings, I think it's really important to create what I call communities of practice. Communities that support you in your path towards the growth that you're seeking. So, you know, I want to know who they spend their time with, what the time is like with those people, and what are the holes in their social life? You know, what what areas do they need to fill out in order to have more contact with human beings, more healthy contact with human beings?
1: Right. You know, how do you limit right.
0: the negative and how do you promote the more positive experiences of other people? All that, to me, is really important as foundations for the beginning might work with them therapeutically mm. or, or in this
1: case coaching okay I have two questions to that one is what do people ever lie to you about what and I'm going to you know I'm gonna guess what the answer is here but do they lie about any of these things you know what they're actually doing and uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing eventually it comes out but Uh, How do you,
0: you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I'm um, I'm sure there are deceivers amongst us, Um, you know, but I actually have them write out journals. So I look for patterns um, over time and unless they're completely psychotic and and they're so good at lying, you usually can see things over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, you know, I'm very clear up front that if they agree to work with me, they have to be held accountable to what they agree to in terms of what they, they're doing with me so mm-hmm. lying doesn't serve them and it's a waste of my time as well um, right. so you know obviously I would just completely discourage lying because it doesn't help anyone especially them right um, and, and as I said I can over time I see patterns because so I look you now I look at their diet nutrition drug use I look at their sleep I look at all these other things and you can see patterns over time and as you see patterns that's where some of the good interventions can come in. And they can mm-hmm. start fixing, you know, kind of the lower level subtle things to improve their health uh, and well being, which gives them more strength and power to make the kind of changes they want to make. And that's ultimately my goal of doing these five pillars is kind of getting the, the nervous system, the physiology um, dialed in so they, they, they can make these changes that they're seeking for coming into therapy or coaching with me.
1: Right. It's Fascinating. Because uh, my next question is what, what if they have a huge resistance to giving you all of this information at the beginning? I mean, you answered that pretty much by saying um, they have to be clear that if they want to work with you, this is, you know, they have to be upfront and you have to know all of this stuff. But what if, what if that is just, you know, they just don't want to give you that information? Well, Wait, is that a deal breaker? You
0: know, well, it, it depends how honest they are about not wanting to give you the information. If, if, uh-huh. if they tell me that, and that's you know, grist for the mill, that's actually something really interesting for us to explore, okay. uh, is it a lack of trust. You know, what, what on their part leads them to head in that direction? Um, so that's actually, you know, if, if they're honest about it, that's helpful to proceed in good coaching or therapy. Um, and you know, we got to be careful here because
1: I do coaching, I don't do therapy. I'm going to use right. both right. words. Oh, no, absolutely. But, yeah. Absolutely. It's something completely yeah. different. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. But it's, um, so when people are coming in, they're assuming they're, they're ready to make those kinds of changes. And this is what they have to do in order to, to be in coaching with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. It's, that is actually very fascinating. Um, I do not do those kinds of things with coaching clients um i i know we're not talking about me but it's just so vastly different i will work with people to from where they are i I begin from where they are i don't you know ask them these kinds of things and then we work on making the changes while we come up with these kinds of things because i find that for me with my clients the Pressure of making too many changes or doing too many things at once, it becomes overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, let me clarify on that. So okay. I just did a, uh, a session last night with a potential new client, okay. um, and, I, and what I say is for the first month, there's no value judgment. I don't want you to change anything on those five pillars. I just oh, want to okay. know what they look like. I want to know okay. what your sleep looks like, your food, drug use, alcohol use, you know, exercise. Stress management, social engagement. You know, I want to know what is. I don't want you to be changing things because I got to see your what your patterns are up to date, including this this whole month, because that tells me a lot, you know, about the the culture you're brought up in, your own psychology, the state of your own health. Um, So I, you know, my judgment, (laughs) quote unquote, doesn't come into later. When I say judgment, I mean you know, from
1: I, your, you know right? I understand. I hold you accountable. I, I, please yeah. clarify, because yeah. there are people who won't understand yeah. when you use the word judgment. It's not a you know. Just explain what you mean by judgment.
0: Yeah. So, first month is value free. I'm not going to judge you because you eat like crap, you don't sleep well, or you don't exercise. Yeah. That's not. That's not what what I'm trying to gather from you. Just trying to gather what your life is like. Now, after the month, and we kind of see patterns and we have a conversation. Then my client will take a decision. I want to change X or Y or Z. You know, I mm-hmm. want to, you know, I want to cut out the sugars or the you know snack foods or you know whatever they decide they want to do. In you know we have a conversation about it. I'm not putting my, you know, I'm, I'm not telling them what they need to do in terms of their food or their exercise. I have thoughts and suggestions which I will make, but I want to mm-hmm. know what comes out of them. And then if they say, let's say, let's say they want to go paleo or they want to go vegetarian, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. If They really want to do that, then we make an agreement that that's what they're going to do for the next 30 days because it takes about 30 days for a new habit to emerge, and that's where my quote judgment will come in. And you know, I'm not an ass about it, but you know, if they make an agreement to change, they need to stick to that agreement, and if they don't, then we need to explore why they fell off the wagon, why they ate things that they agreed not to eat.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's it's
0: not like a you know. I'm a stern judger. I'm going to scream and yell at them. It's not like that, but I'm going to hold them accountable to the decisions that they've taken to improve certain aspects of their lives. Um, And like you said, I agree. I don't have them do
1: a million things at once. Right. That's not sustainable. I think, yeah, I think, well, uh, accountability is key in coaching. And um, that's, that's really what, you know, a big part of the relationship is, you know, they're coming, somebody's coming to you for, for aid, assistance, guidance, direction, whatever, you know, whatever it plays in at that minute. Um, and then it's funny, and this is also for another, and what I was going to say is I guess by that first month of just observing And you also get a sense of and knowledge of where the person came from, what brought them to this particular place in their lives and circumstance. And I mean, whether that's food or whatever it is, which probably gives you the information later on when there is that accountability Uh, to the change. Very
0: much so, and food's a great example because our relationship to food can tell me a lot about their upbringing and how they kind of plan out and live out their days. Not only the right. type of food they eat, but where they eat it, how they eat it, and with whom they eat it, right. and what's their inner sense while they're eating the food. Um, <clears> and the social <throat> stuff, too. You know, I, I ask a lot about family. You know, tell me about your family, your in- if you're married, your in-laws, cousins, uncles, aunts, parents, you know, all that stuff is really important to me both for understanding the, the family dynamics the, which they emerge from and the patterns they might be living out of, um, but also, you know, so I get a feel for the kind of support or lack of support they might have within
1: their uh, nuclear or extended family. Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. Really interesting. It's, again, very differently than I work, um, very, very differently. But I like, I like a lot of what you're saying and, you know, the question that came up, which is not about uh, immediately the question of being that authority figure and how people react to you. And I do wonder if there's a difference between, you know, a gender difference, the authority figure as a male and the authority figure as a female because I'm, you know a lot plays out as far as that, and you being the authority figure, and does that sometimes, do you, you, do know, you sense that and sense that there's some sort of a repetition going on and, and they're not really reacting to you as you? You know, there's like a, that transference happening. I was going to say the counter-transference. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah
0: I mean, I, I did study that in school, and I'm, and I'm familiar with the transference, counter-transference, and yeah, that does play out. Um, and it really, it, um, you can get some insight into their family of origin and the culture that they come from by right. seeing how they respond to me as a male, or I, you could probably say the same for you as a female when you're working with folks.
1: Right. Yeah. No, because I was just thinking when you were telling me those things and I was imagining doing this with some of my clients and again, it's so vastly different. They come in for different issues and, you know, it's a different coaching style and it's, Again, they come in for possibly different issues. Um, I I'm was just imagining saying some of this to some of my clients, and it I'm like I was laughing, because um, I, I wonder how that would come across. It's, it's very interesting, very interesting. Um, OK. You had spoken last time. We had spoken when we spoke last time. You described a patient who was abusing substances, legal, um, et etc. you know, coffee and drugs, etc. You talked about the fr- how the first step was getting him to stop using the substances. Uh, I get how that's a first step, but how does, and does that tie into your philosophy? At first I had thought transpersonal, but now all of your philosophy, or is it a strategic step to get them to a place where they can begin the work. Well, if
0: you we recall, the, 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 in that time, as a patient who was working with this kind of therapist, um, came to me because he had kind of a generalized anxiety disorder. He attributed it to his family of origin, his relationship to his mother, and he had a hard time relating to women. That's why he came in to see me. Um, okay. and what I discovered in working with him is that he, he over-consumed coffee and sodas throughout the day. Um, his diet was really poor, he didn't sleep well at night because he was wired from all the caffeine, Mm -hmm. he then would take sleeping agents at night or uh, over-the-counter prescription or alcohol to put him to sleep. So his Mm -hmm. sleep was really, really off. I actually worked on all those things subtly slowly at once while reducing his caffeine intake because Mm -hmm. I recognized, I thought at the time this was to be true, that with his physiology so off, I didn't know what if it, if his anxiety was purely physiological based on the poor sleep, back nutrition, and over stimulation, and or what part of it, percentage of it, was related to, you know, trouble with engaging with women based on his family of origin issues. So I needed to clear up his physiology first. So that's what we did he clean up his diet, okay. kept sleeping better, reduce his caffeine intake towards zero, not completely zero, but towards zero. Got him off the sleeping agents at night. Once he felt better then I could see what, what, you know, what level of anxiety did he still have. He still had some, but nothing like it was when he first came to see me. Okay. And still the anxiety, so then we could start working on the relationship issues. Okay. Um, but I don't think I would have done him a disservice if I would have skipped the whole diet, sleep, nutrition stuff, and just dove right into the anxiety related to his family of origin and some other issues. Um, okay. you know, that, I don't think that would have done him well.
1: Right. Uh, uh, very. That's interesting. Uh, interesting. I like that. Okay. Um, if what would you do actually if you're working with someone and as you're working with them, and if this happens or if you can imagine this happening, and while you're working with them, they start developing uh, a, subst- a you know, a substance abuse problem. So,
0: um, from a transpersonal perspective, I would be interested in what. Whole, they're filling with their drug use, or alcohol okay. use, right? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, you know, since I work, for, I work with many perspectives. I would look at it from many perspectives. So that would okay. be that would be one. You know, is you know, people can replace the search and desire to be connected to God or Spirit by using substances. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something missing in your life like that? It doesn't have to be God or spirit or, or something. Right. You know, it could be a, just a connection with another human being, but there's something missing which the substances can fill that gap. Not well, <laughs> not in healthy right. ways, right, destructive right. That's possible, one interpretation of substance use. Another might be to repress certain feelings. Mm-hmm. You know? So I would want to know why they're using the substances and what benefit they are they perceiving from using those substances. And that would help determine how I would interpret their substance abuse and how it would work with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would not have one size fits all. The reason you're using drugs is X and this is what we need to do to stop it. Right. I, don't, I don't think that works as everyone is slightly different, you know. Mm-hmm. Biochemical individuality, different psycho- psychologies, different biographies, you know, different right. cultures that they emerge from. Or that are part of them um, so I would not have like I said one size fits all I want to have a better understanding of what led them to the substance abuse whether what, what benefits they perceive from the substance abuse and I you know i give you a, a lower level example and this is not mm-hmm. substance abuse I mean it's not it's not like a heroin addiction or something but you know right, I, right, okay. I do have a client that I've worked with uh, previously a, co- a coaching client so a patient um, who under stress drank Mm-hmm. And drank a good bit. Not, not like, you know, like f- al- enough that they might be characterized as a- alcoholic, but enough that it was problematic for them. Okay. Um, and they also ate. So they, they, they dealt their stress by eating um, high sugary foods and, and drinking. So one of the things we did do is three things. I, I taught this person certain meditation practices to help this person deal with their stress better. Um, which brought down the stress level. You know, more of arousal control type stuff. Okay. Um, four things actually talked about the situations in which the stress emerged and if there's different ways to frame it. You know, it's more like cognitive behavioral stuff, which mm-hmm. I find to be useful as well. Um, exercise and moving became part of this too because that helps dissipate the stress and you have a better relationship. You know, you feel better because you have the girlfriend rush and stuff. Um, right. But also, we changed her diet. There are dietary changes which led her to feel more satiated, so she didn't, under stress, have that kind of sugar desire for sugar as much as she did.
1: Because um, mm-hmm. a lot of
0: people under stress, they don't sleep well, and they crave carbs. So right. we actually increased, under um, supervision of a doctor, her, her fat intake a good bit, mm-hmm. and that, that quelled her desire for the carbs, increased her protein and fat intake, and that quelled her, her desire for the carbs um, taught her through cognitive behavioral things, different ways of thinking about her stress situation, meditation, to manage her stress a little better. And through all of that stuff, she reduced her alcohol consumption. When she did that, she slept better at night, which is a nice cycle because then she felt better during the day. The problem with alcohol at night is that it interrupts sleep. If you interrupt your sleep, the next day you feel anxious, tired, worn mm-hmm. out. Cognitively you don't work as well. Your body doesn't work as well. You create carbs. It's a really dangerous cycle. So, right. you know, we were able to reduce her alcohol intake and reduce her um, carb intake and it seems to be holding. Um, and these are practices, you know, all these things take time and mm-hmm. you know, there might be days or weeks that she falls off the wagon and doesn't do so well, but hopefully over time she implements these four different pillars that we, I just discussed with you. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she has a, you know, a different approach and she doesn't need these substances, whether it's food or alcohol. To deal
1: with the stress she's feeling, the anxiety at night. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had a couple of questions while you were talking. Um, One, first of all, I like what you said, and it's just, I wish more people understood in today's day and age. You were saying it takes time, and in our culture, everybody wants the quick fix, the super duper quick fix. And I think that's one of the problems of modern life, is that we're so used to so many things going so fast that the normal rhythms <clears throat> of change are are lost on people. And they don't, you know, they come in and they want the immediate, first of all, they want immediate relief. But the concept of how change takes time is so important to to stress for everyone. Uh, the second thing, when you were talking about, you said we talked, and then you mentioned cognitive behavioral. Those, I hear those as two different things. What are your thoughts on, on talking as a curative? Get it, you know, being known, um, feeling understood, being known to another human being and and having the curative experience with the therapist, like the, the relationship as a healing process. Those are actually a number of different questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, I'm a fan of, fan of Roger's. I
1: think uh, he was yes. a strong Yes, that's what I was thinking of. I just didn't want it to get all... Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Unconditional okay. regard, I think, is what the term he used uh-huh. or something unconditional love or there's some word he used semi-clinical semi woo-woo that described you know the connection with another human being um, and this actually fits well with the whole transpersonal school but you don't have to be a transpersonal therapist to see the value of this you know there, there is something and I'll just repeat what basically you said about having your heart open
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and having someone else see you for who you really are at that very moment and, and their heart is open and they accept you i completely agree there's something very healing about that um i'm reminded in the 90s i worked with uh dr len Saputo, a mm-hmm. san francisco based um, uh, integrated medicine doctor at the health medicine forum and uh, i was responsible for bringing patients into what was called the health medicine panel process okay. and it's a two hour so I've, I've worked with a patient we'd have a health guide we would bring them in to a two-hour process with six other healthcare practitioners. Always had a medical doctor, but we might have a chiropractor, Ayurvedic doctor, Chinese medicine, psychologist, naturopath. We had shamans, psychologists, body workers. Wide variety of different healers, but always an MD. And for two hours, the patient was was would talk. Well, for the first hour, the patient would talk and tell their story, and the six healers would ask you know deepening questions. And it was amazing because you'd see patients cry either during the session or they report afterwards because that was the first time, especially in a quote unquote medical setting, that someone actually listened to them. They weren't just a set of symptoms which you prescribe a medicine for and then send them on their way after a five minute visit. But for at least an hour, people were really interested in their story. And then the second hour, uh, each of the people would do their particular diagnostics, you know, pulse reading, if you're the acupuncturist, tongue reading, uh, looking at the X-rays, looking at blood work, asking questions—you know, subjective questions of other subjectivity—various things like that. But e- you know, even the first hour was really healing. Adding two together, it's a really healing process. Um, so, so I've had, I've seen that in group settings how powerful it can be. Let alone, as you suggested, just one-on-one, just having someone listen to you, hear you, and see you, and feel you, um, mm-hmm. and know what, you. Know you, yeah
1: and and know know you with all of your disgusting qualities yeah yeah. you know (laughs) yeah and that's that's the thing it's it's completely different than a relationship as far as uh not completely different but it's different in that you go in there and that's the person hey you you have to take me like this you have to know this disgusting thing about me or and all of those negative the feelings the traits the actions um That's one of the, you know, one of the tenets of of my training was that, you know, we work a lot with aggression and allowing people to have their aggressive thoughts, aggressive feelings, not acting on them, and that's part of it, but where aggression is, it's a powerful tool besides everything. I don't think of aggression as a dirty word at all, Um, you know, as long as it's used, in the power of good. Again, we wouldn't have cities, we wouldn't have anything without, without the aggressive drive. Right. right, right. Um, but that healing... Um, it, it, what's interesting is a, a question just came to mind. I had an intake, like, you know, first, uh, like an introductory session with a woman, and one of the things she asked me is, you you don't go too deep with the coaching, right? Like, if I don't want to go deep with the coaching. And it was interesting to me that somebody came right out and said that. Um, and I said, absolutely. You know, in, in my case, and with the kind of work that we were talking about doing, um, no, it didn't have to go deep at all. But it was fascinating to me that there was just... I think it wasn't that it was fascinating to me. I admired the fact that she came right out and said something that I am sure a lot of other people think. You know, that terror of going deep, of being known, all of the stuff that does happen in therapy um, that can in, in a good therapeutic um, relationship. You know,
0: that's a good segue to my comments earlier about communities of practice. Ah, um, uh-huh. Because i think it's really important to have communities in which you're part of where that can be the norm you know yes. unfortunately in the west in particular in this time uh you know with families we don't even have family we don't have extended families anymore we barely have nuclear families anymore um uh, right. you know we don't have that kind There of that
1: are family. those that do have huge <laughs> uh, no of course.
0: they're outliers yeah. that have big families of course um, right, right, but it doesn't mean necessarily that the culture within any one of these families that we're referring to uh, supports that kind of beingness or being with someone else in that absolutely. kind
1: of way. And what if you're completely different than yeah. all of those people? That's a whole other... Yeah. That's something completely different. It's like, you know, what? Wow. How did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, no, but that is... that, And that could be a cultural thing. That's how the person was raised. That's how they function. I think another problem that we have today, and, oh, you know, I often... I say to people, you know, Freud begat... Phil Donahue, I think, was the first, or was it Jack? You know, I don't know who these... Like, I don't know what they were, but the first uh, touchy-feely talk shows, who then begat Oprah, who then begat... You know uh, the Kardashians at social media, there is a sense that just by purging oneself of words and saying something that so that there it's been diluted that there is a a therapeutic you know it just becomes this like sort of word dump feeling dump that isn't really that doesn't necessarily work in a person's favor. And I think there's a danger I, I keep going back to it, you know, uh, where the person comes where they're saying things they really should not be saying. One of the things we have talked about when I'm I'm working now with parents and educators on children and one of the issues is, you know, what to say and who to say it to in this world where you know, there's just this sense of just, yes, talk, and, and you'll feel better, just say it and dump it. And I think it comes from this, begin, you know, the beginnings of this talk, well, therapy, and, and that.
0: I, I'm a strong supporter of having a container in which to express one's deeper, deepest aspirations and fears and such. But I, yes. like you, would make a distinction between that, doing that in a private space. In a private exactly. Space. Could be a group. Exactly.
1: You use the word container. That's yeah. exactly it. It has to be in a private, safe space. Yeah. Versus um,
0: put it all over
1: the you know the world. Right. And and again, I don't know how much time we have today because no, it's uh, it's nine twenty-five actually right now. But um, I would. So let me just ask you about the. Uh, I'm curious about the psychedelics and how that works in in transpersonal, not in your. Uh, practice, but in transpersonal therapy, you know, psychedelics sure, sure. and the sure. other alternative spiritual mystical practices.
0: So there, there are a wide variety of practices, which I referred to at the very beginning of meditation, yoga, prayer, um, sensory deprivation, trance dance, chanting, mm-hmm. and, and psychedelic medicines. Um, all of them have different effects, but uh, they, they, how do I... There's so many distinctions, I don't want to necessarily go down every single path of the distinction between this practice. Okay. But there are, there are certain practices which open the body, open the mind, open the heart. Sometimes in a, a genic setting, so just about the individual opening up themselves. It could be communal, like the trance dance is very communal. Uh, psychedelic sessions can be just a, a guide in an individual. It could be a guide in a couple. It could be a large group. You know, It really depends on, on the intention behind the practice or attention or behind that particular practice at that particular time. Um, but there are a lot of interesting practices I and mean, now with technology there, there are even more things that allow one to open their heart, to be more care and compassionate, to reduce their stress, to open their minds to new ways of thinking and being in the world, you know, which are really important because we have a tendency, I think, we as human beings tend, tend to be conservative, not in the, 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 in the philosophical uh, political sense, but out of survival and conserving energy you know we mostly they're, they're outliers of course who seek novelty but most of us seek habits you know comfortable habits and uh, i like that um, which is fun you know it's just kind of you know because when you have the novelty seekers something new enters the culture and then it kind of settles down becomes the norm and then the outliers the novelist seekers bring in something new and it, you know slowly integrates into the culture Causing revolutions, it's more evolutionary process. I think evolution is better than revolution. Um, But we have a tendency to be quite conservative that way. Not everyone, like I said. Um, And these medicines, whether they're meditation, yoga, you know, central deprivation, or the psychedelic medicines, um, can shake that up. It can show you how you are locked into a certain way of being, behaving, thinking, and feeling in the world, which is self limiting. So, for instance, you know, one of the medicines that are now being tested is MDMA, three, four methylene, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. On the street, it's called ecstasy. But I would never encourage anyone to use a street drug. You have no idea what you're getting. Um, right. But, you know. So, FDA approved, DEA approved, clinical studies with MDMA. Um, it's less. Could recited. you just
1: describe M- MDMA four? Sure. Do you know what I
0: mean? Uh, it's three, four methylene de- me- Three, four, methylene dexamethamphetamine. methamphetamine. might have just screwed that one up. I had it the first time. Um, it's, uh, it's it's, not a hallucinogen like LSD or psilocybin, so it's less likely to have visual and auditory hallucinations. What it's known for, you might replace the word psychedelic with and pathogen. It's a hard opening drug. Um, okay. It's personally being studied for its use for PTSD mm-hmm. because people who have been raped or were victims of war crimes right. or soldiers... You, you know, been in combat, um, it, it works to create a compassionate space for their own suffering. They mm-hmm. can see their own suffering in new ways and it reduces their own suffering, which is just, you know, amazing. It's not, right. you know, most of the treatments today for PTSD, at least conventionally, or you know, symptom management, you know, reducing the flows of energy in the body through anxiety, anti-anxiety nets or antidepressants, right. you know, kind of knocking out certain brain functions. So you're, you're less in the world, but you know you're able to function in the world. The MDMA is completely different than that because it'd be one-time use, or you know, it might be two or three times use over a couple of years. Uh, it's an eight to ten-hour session. You always have a guide who sits with you. It's very much like what you talked about earlier, where you where you are with someone who is caring, compassionate, listening, and you just mm-hmm. get into a space where your defenses drop, you feel safe, and all whatever is you can just come out. And if you have a good guide, they can help guide you, you know, guide all that out of you and and help you reframe it. It's physiological, it's psychological, and for some people it can be quite a a spiritual experience because it it can redo who they think they are. It Mm -hmm. kind of opens them up to new ways of of thinking of who they are in the world and the world itself. And it can make them go from a place where they are a victim in a scary, threatening world to where they are empowered as an individual and loving, caring world which is completely mm-hmm. you know,
1: fortunately. The experience though, I have to tell you, like when I hear about something like that yeah. and going through it with a guide in nine hours, I would understand when someone would say, Oh my God, that sounds terrifying Because I, and again you don't jump right into it. You don't walk into a practitioner's office and, and immediately this is the first thing that you're doing. But yeah. it sounds scary. Yeah, like
0: well, let me let me walk through how it you know, if this was, right now it's being done uh, in very controlled settings because it has to be FDA approved, approved. Right. Let me walk you well, through. Yeah, what that makes what, sense. Yeah. But in the 80s, uh, it was legal and therapists used it. So let me walk you through what a therapy session might look like in the 80s okay. when it was legal and you didn't have to worry about going to a hospital or a clinical setting to do the therapy, you know, these kind of sessions. Um, the, the therapy you would have to whether you're doing LSD or MDMA or one of the other medicines, you, you would spend a good amount of time with that therapist doing regular sessions, them getting to know you, you know, who you are, what your motivations are, your aspirations, your fear, your family dynamics, you know, what kind of traumas you might have faced, you know, the, the normal therapy things that you and I would, would do and learn to do mm-hmm. with, with patients because you want the person to feel comfortable with you. right. Um, and if they're most likely if they're transpersonally oriented, um, and a lot of the psychedelic psychotherapists would be because psychedelics have a tendency to open you up to these transpersonal spaces through non or, you know non-ordinary states of consciousness. Um, you know they might have you engage in other practices, teaching you to meditate, um, because when you're doing a psychedelic, you have to be able to let go. You, I mean literally let go. Like your your the body armor has to relax the. Psychic controls have to relax. And for many people, that's both, quote-unquote, possible and very scary. They don't know how to relax out of that. Because that it serves them. You and I talked about that before. The defense mechanism serves you to some Uh degree or another. And they they play an important role in your life. Meditation, as one example, is a way to slowly release some of that holding. There are body practices, various massage and movement practices which can teach you how to relax the body and create space, uh, you know, in the musculature so you can increase the breathing. You know, those kind of things are really useful because they teach you how to let go and relax so you're not so tight, both physically tight and mentally tight and emotionally tight. Uh, sensor deprivation mm-hmm. tanks are a great way to kind of teach you how to let go and relax. So, you know, there, um, um, many therapists Probably would have taught their patients these various practices previous to the use of the medicine, so they can learn how to relax in an even safer, quote-unquote, session setting. Because you know, meditation is not really threatening. Yoga is not really threatening. I mean, people might have some issues, but you know, it's, not, it's different than eight hours under a psychedelic. Um, so you slowly teach someone how to relax, unwind, let go, undo their armor. Um, and you're also developing the, you know, interpersonal connections with them. Then you do the session, and the session, you have to be in a very safe environment. It could be outside, a beautiful day, or in a, in a very loving, and caring environment, like in, in an office with beautiful pictures, and, um, you know, uh, flowers. You know, it has to, can't, I wouldn't put anyone in, a, like, a white room <laughs> uh, right. in a hospital. Well, bed. that's
1: why I was surprised when you said it could be outdoors.
0: Yeah, a lot of sessions are done outdoors. Um because nature is just healing in and of itself. Right. Um and so you you do the session, let's just say it's MDMA or LSD, they have that they have an the experience. And part of that experience, the, the trained therapist, if they're comfortable doing this, might actually be doing a little bit of body work. Because, you know, as a somatic therapist, as someone who's trained in somatic therapy myself, I could see how someone might get in get into certain emotional states and they get kind of stuck in the body. So various uh, pressure points might help release something, so they can breathe more deeply and get more fully into the experience. Um, so body work might play a role. At the end of it, art might come in. You know, why don't you draw out or paint or or do some kind of artistic expression of what the last eight hours were like? Talk, to, you know, mm-hmm. talk to me about it. Write it out in a journal. Draw it out, uh, and that's the that's the suggestion they might take home with them too. You know, because it's. The eight hours are interesting, but the real work really happens afterwards. How do you integrate those openings that you had into your daily life? Um, and that takes practice. You know, that's where you continue to meditate. You might do more artwork. You might do more journaling. You might put yourself in situations where you can actually experience loving kindness from other people. Mm-hmm. You know, So you, you keep your heart open if you're doing the MDMA. Or if you did right. LSD and you have some kind of religious experience or spiritual experience, you, know, you might want to surround yourself with people who are supportive of that particular path, so you can keep that, that opening open. Um, and practices are really important. You know, you said earlier, kind of about discipline, and we're Americans and we want everything yesterday.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, uh, yes, the session is great, probably knocks out like six to eight months of therapy or a couple years of therapy, and, you know, kind of reduces it to eight hours, but the real work happens afterwards. As I said, okay. you have to integrate. You have to keep your heart open, you have to keep your mind open, you have to do your journaling and your artistic work, that's part of it, your meditation, your yoga, your movement practices, surrounding yourself with a new set of people who, are, you know, support you. All that's work. Right.
1: <laughs> now, let me ask you something else, because it sounds also like what you're describing is, first of all, it's a huge investment in time. Yeah. And our people were uh, people willing to do that you know all of the things that you just described i'm talking about the afterwards i'm not talking about even the therapy part but huge you know it sounds like a very large investment in time do do people ever say to you look i just don't have the time for all of that well i
0: I can't speak to me because i don't run psychedelic sessions Um, right but my guess is that you, like any other group of people, you would have some who have the discipline to c- continue on afterwards and do all the things they need to do. I know mm-hmm. others who say, that was a you know, really interesting experience, I learned a lot, you know, I did take something away from it, it did change my life, but I, you know, I'm not really so interested in, in deepening that process. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure there, and there's people in between who you know, will do some things and not so many other things. It really depends on the individual. My encouragement, if this stuff is legal and being done regularly in the United States, is that you know you really want to encourage people to continue on the spiritual path or the psycho-spiritual physical path of healing outside of the sessions or post-session,
1: because mm-hmm.
0: um, you know the sessions can really open you and he- do a lot of healing, but it's not a cure-all. I mean, right. you know, we're human beings; we have long histories, you know, long, long deep biographies, a lot of patterning. <laughs> in our nervous system and and some of those things can take a good bit of time to change and
1: sometimes the exception just knocked
0: it right out, boom, whatever you came in with is done,
1: you don't have to worry about it again. Wow, now that sounds appealing. Um, But not always. What's interesting, (laughs) uh, what I like very much that you said is the idea of just looking at yourself, experiencing yourself and perceiving yourself in a different way than you did before
0: let me let me give you an example of that. So, um, I, I did when I was in graduate school. I interviewed people who actually did MDMA um, mm-hmm. for a paper that I wrote because I was very interested in, you know, what kind of subjective experiences these people had. And I had one woman who had a very very bad relationship with her mother, just like really bad. Her mother was quite narcissistic, and you can just imagine the effects on this person having a narcissist. Narcissistic mother would have, mm-hmm. um, and so she had a lot of love and rage at her mother. You know, love and hate, love and hate, back and forth. Um, she did the session, and in her session, she she sat by the bed of her mother. But her mother was a little girl. She saw her mother as a little girl, and her mother was crying from the suffering that she had received in her own family of origin. Mm-hmm. And that was a really healing experience for for this person because they got to see their mother as not good or evil, but just as an uh, injured human being. Mm-hmm. And, and she had compassion for her mother, and that just released mm-hmm. a lot of her anger towards her mother. Now, it doesn't mean that you know her relationship that she, that she thought her mother was cured, she just saw her mother completely differently. And it was good for this person because she was no longer walking around with so much anger at her mother, and she could go live her life. Wow. That's that, nice. Yeah, and, you know, that's just one experience among many that I, I when I did these interviews, I learned from people, of, you know, just their recontextualizing people in their lives or experience in their lives, which freed them from kind of these habits, their self-destructive habits.
1: Right. Now, let me ask you something else. What if, because we've been talking about substance abuse, and it's something that comes up in, in a lot of my work, and... What not a lot of the work, but uh, but it comes up at, at certain times and now again working with younger people where the parents are trying to keep them away from addictions as as much as possible. I'm very fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, what if there's a person who comes in who Either has a tendency to um, addictions, or has a history of, of addictive behavior, or is in the throes of an addiction, and then introducing uh, drugs, you know, legal, not legal, whatever it is. I mean, not not legal, but um, what, like, how does that? work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't
0: so, know if I'm raising I, the question well. Yeah, and so I, obviously I can't speak from personal experience because I don't work with psychedelics as a therapist and I don't see right. people with addiction that way. But but you know, having worked and talked to people who have been in that field for a long time, doing it underground or now doing it legally or having done it legally before it's criminalized, um, quite a few of the psychedelic medicines have anti-addiction qualities to them they're actually now being studied for their ability to help people get out of addictions.
1: Oh, okay.
0: uh, Which is quite interesting. So Mm -hmm. you know, um, if anyone, you know, the present day legal research is going on, they'd always do a background, not a background check, but they always do, you know, ensure that you don't have a psychiatric history of psychiatric illness in in yourself or your family, you know, they screen out a lot of people um, who actually might down the road, once this stuff is legal and more real research, benefit from these medicines. But presently, you know, if someone's highly addicted, unless they're studying these medicines for an addiction, um, my guess is they would, they would not have that person in the study. However, like I said, certain medicines are being studied. Um, you know, the gentleman who founded AA, he credited partially uh, his discovery of the whole AA, you know, the system of thought from his LSD use.
1: You know, I just... Read that. Yeah. I was so fascinated by that fact. I didn't know that until like so recently. Yeah, and um, I think that he suggested using it as part of the treatment. Am I correct? Um, and and people roundly, you know, said no, <laughs> not not the way to go. Yeah, I, I don't know that part of the story.
0: Uh, and this is probably this probably happened, you know, obviously before it's criminalized and stuff, because you know it was pretty widely used among certain circles in the late 50s, early 60s, um, uh-huh. legally. Generally. I didn't know the late 50s. Oh, that's interesting, okay. Uh, there, there's a whole history of the CI actually being involved in LSD research in the late 50s. And uh-huh. there, there's an there's a, uh, uh, Army, uh, there's an agency with the Army that's also working closely with the CIA doing LSD research in the late 50s. But all that aside, oh, wow. late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Um Ketamine, which is a tranquilizer um, used mm-hmm. as anesthetic for surgery, in lower doses it's highly psychedelic and it's being studied now i think in russia for heroin addiction Mm. and uh, ayahuasca which comes from south america is being studied for its effects against alcoholism okay so i think there's a lot of promise there and you know I, i i wonder two things does it change the brain chemistry is it changing the brain chemistry enough that whatever causes the, the circuits of the brain to lean towards it's you know, cures them of that, and or, you know, is there some kind of narrative that's happening in the psyche, which is modified to, you know, kind of reframing how you think and, and are in the world. Probably some combination of the two. Right. Um, you know, so you, So, you,
1: yeah. It's just, the the whole topic is fascinating, and I have a bunch mm-hmm. of more questions, but I, I think we should... Uh, and with this one, sure. <laughs> the, you know, and your thoughts on what are some ways that, that you believe? Because there's like, you know every time I talk to you again, now there's more questions and then I, I realize there's stuff that I didn't comment on or didn't quest you know ask about, but okay, to be continued. But let's say how can somebody uh, some ways that people can expand their experiences on a daily basis, small changes that people could start with right away.
0: Good you know, let, let's
1: say somebody is coming in, they, they want relief um, and they, they want a different experience. What could they do? Small, simple things that they could do.
0: A gratitude journal. Uh-huh. Um, there's one that I use, I think it's called a five minute gratitude journal and I, and I hope I have the name correct. Um, okay. and, it, and it's great. It just asks you, know, asks you some simple handful of questions uh, what you're grateful for, and it changes your frame of mind because you know there's got to be at least one thing people are grateful for, even if they're having a really rough day or rough week or rough month or rough year. Right, and just, just recognizing in your daily life that there's someone or something to be grateful to or a handful um, mm-hmm. can reframe how you see the world slightly.
1: You know, that's nice. And do you you're... do that at the same time every day, or yeah, do you okay? Morning, morning, evening, do you mind? Like, it, it, yeah. It, in the morning okay mm-hmm. yeah um and so I'm, it sort of gets you going in a positive mindset for your day
0: yeah and it's actually it's a morning and evening practice because at the end of the day there there are questions on the same page that ask about your day
1: right um but you know, a friend of mine got me a, a journal um and it's like the the big book of awesome oh nice and nice. it's the same kind of thing it's yeah. like you know, every day, hey, this was awesome, that was awesome, and, and that kind of thing. So that I guess that's a gratitude journal.
0: The second thing, and I learned this from Coach Chris Smith. He's a retired, uh, I don't think he's retired. He's a former SEAL, and he works with us, a SEAL fit. Great guy. Okay. He, he tries to make five people smile a day.
1: Oh, that's so sweet.
0: And he's really okay, good at it. I really, really it. like that. Um, and I think it's a fantastic practice because, you know, not only are you spreading it so you're helping other people smile and make you know, their right. day at least for a minute or two, but when you actually smile, if you, if you're changing the musculature in your face, you actually change your brain. Right. Uh, and you change your breathing patterns. It actually leads to you know, reduction of stress mm-hmm. um, and makes you feel better. So not only are you helping That's... other people, you're also helping yourself by encouraging yeah. others
1: to smile. And, um, I personally, I'm a random acts of kindness person, you know, I just do that sometimes, (laughs) I sometimes I have to hold myself back, but, um, but I find that that I, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to try and make people better and, and just make their day better, you know, and, um, I think a huge thing also is listening to people, really listening to them and, um. Some you know, I find that that can change your life, a person's life as well. But I like that. I like the gratitude journal idea, and I like uh, making the five people smile a day, because you probably smile with them. Yep. If, you know? And that I, is such a nice, that's really cute. I have that's, three, I three more quick love. ones. And uh, the
0: third one fits in with what you just said. Try to have a new conversation every day with someone new, or even someone old. But, I mean, not in age, but some of you already know. But with your intention of just being a deep listener, mm-hmm. it, be present for them.
1: And I can't help myself. <laughs> sometimes it's painful. Like sometimes, it, No, really, sometimes like those little conversations on the street, I'm like, oh, no, you know. Um, but that's interesting. New conversation. That, that's interesting. I like that, too. And then the other two like are drink lots of water throughout
0: the yeah. day and make sure and you I, move. Okay. Movement is really, really important
1: hmm i I also am a big fan of learning something new every day um I'm probably a new fan of like learning something new every minute but okay we'll, <laughs> we'll dial it back right, right. Uh, but definitely every day because those experiences the you know you talk about the the thrill seeking uh, there's also intellectual thrill seeker and thr- right. you know intellectual and um of um, what to call again, uh, adventurer and that uh, does make the day. You just you just open your whole world in different ways. Anyway, as, uh, this was just amazing. Of course, I have tons more questions, and but I want to think about this. And um, I look forward to our next conversation. Same Thank here, you Kiki. Thank you. So much for your time and for your thoughts. And, again, being so generous with your information and knowledge. It's deeply appreciated. You're welcome. So take care. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, (laughs) Kiki. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.